Shalom. <laughs> All right. Welcome to uh, Providence Bible Church. If you're visiting with us, today is not a geography lesson. You might be scared when you see the maps on the chairs. But um, it actually, it kind of is a geography lesson, but it's going to be an interesting one. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 14. I'm going to kind of be going all over the Bible in different passages of Scripture. But um, at the same time, people were kind of wanting to know about the trip to Israel. And so this is what I'm going to try to accomplish today. I'm just going to tell you right off the bat what I want to do. When I was in Bible college and, and seminary, and then even in different churches, I was taught really well how to take the Bible and break it down into smaller and smaller and smaller parts. And this Hebrew word means this, this Greek word means this, and and this if-then statement. And, and you, you, you keep drilling down smaller and smaller and smaller, and then you look for all these little details. And and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, sometimes that's called the inductive Bible study method, and there's other other names for it. But what I found myself doing in the last eight to ten years of ministry is actually what's blessed me more is to back up and look at the text from a a bigger viewpoint and see the big picture and follow themes through the text. And one of the most eye-opening things that have happened to me is to be able to go over to Israel and hear the Bible being taught from an Eastern perspective. Uh, one of the primary differences between the East and the West is how they, in, in how they communicate important truth. In, in the West, we communicate truth through propositional statements. And we're very affected by rationalism and the Enlightenment and, and how proofs and theorems and, and all that boring stuff that the teenagers are learning right now in school, right? And we forgot about it when we were adults until we started arguing on social media. Um, but when you go over to the East, what you find is that they communicate with pictures and stories. And the truth is just as deep and it's just as concrete. It's communicated differently. As a matter of fact, just read the Gospels. How does Jesus communicate? Very rarely does he take a propositional statement. He'll make a proposition, and then he proves his proposition by telling the story of painting a picture. And that, that's a huge difference be, between the East and the West. And so what I want to do today is I want to communicate to you, but many of you are interested in the trip to Israel, and so I'm going to try to communicate by showing slides and working our way through a couple different Bible stories and the geography of Israel. I think it'll be really interesting to you. It interests me, and uh, usually what interests me will interest some other people as well. But uh, we got back from Israel on Thursday night, and we had a good time. Just a couple slides to begin with. Some of these are pictures from Becky. This is one of them. This is our group in all our glory, jet-lagged and everything else on the very first morning. Uh, our guide, R.A. Bar David, is right down there in front. Um, and then uh, we started into Jerusalem, and he likes to use people as props, so Danielle got suckered into that one. And I stood in the background and just kind of mocked him. But um, 
But he's teaching about vineyards on this little story. He's a, he's a very creative storyteller uh, or teacher, I should say. And probably I, I told him, I said, you're one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And if you want to know how Jesus teaches, I believe that you could listen to him and get a good idea. Here he is, his teaching. He's, he's 72 years old and he keeps a schedule that is incredible. He, he guides all day long. He goes to bed at 7, gets up at 11. And from 11 to 2, he works, goes to bed at 2 and gets up at 6. And sometimes he'll, He'll drop a group off at the airport on Thursday and he'll get on a plane himself and fly to the United States, teach for two days, Sunday night, fly back to Israel and pick up a group Monday evening and start guiding again. The guy is just gifted with energy and that sort of thing. R.A. Bar-David, incredible Bible teacher. But um, when you study the, the words of Jesus, you find that his his arguments followed lesser to greater or greater to lesser arguments. And when you, when you realize that he taught in the, the Hebrew language, and I've talked about this before, the Hebrew language has fewer words, but they're pictures. You, you, and, and one word can have multiple meanings depending upon the context of the word. One of the most fascinating aspects about the Bible is that the geography of Israel played into the overall communication of truth. And so stories and locations have many, many layers of meaning. We're all familiar with the idea that the, the sacrifices and feasts communicated truth about salvation, but we may be less familiar with the truth being communicated by nature and by geography. And so today I'm going to take a little bit of time. So you have a map, right? I, I gave you a map. I have this custom mapping program. I love it. And so this is a custom map that I created of, of Israel and stuck some stuff on there that I wanted. And I just want to go through a couple things with you as we get started, just so you know about the geography of Israel. Now, some of you may or may not know, uh, the capital of Israel uh, during biblical times was Jerusalem. It's right here. This is the Jordan River Valley running right down here. Now, you notice on the map that it's, it's gray. Everything that is in gray is below sea level. So uh, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus' ministry was, 670 feet below sea level. Um, the Dead Sea is closer to 1,400 feet below sea level. Just think about the change in, in elevation there. And the geography of, of Israel itself plays an important role in communicating truth. The Jordan River Valley is is a part of a larger fault called the Great Rift. It's 4,000 miles long. It starts in Turkey, goes all the way down through Kenya. And the Great Rift, if you Google it, you can find out more. About, don't do it now, though. Okay, do it some other time. Just write a note to yourself, and you can do it. But the part of Israel that contains the Great Rift that's very interesting is the Dead Sea area because the Dead Sea is the lowest place on the face of the earth. You cannot, on, on the face of the earth, there's no way to go any lower in, in altitude. Jericho is the lowest city on the face of the earth. Matter of fact, in this picture, it says the lowest place on the, on the earth, 1,300 feet below sea level. It's also the oldest continuously occupied city in the world. 
And so Jericho is very uh, fascinating. And these two things, the Dead Sea and Jericho, play an important part in communicating biblical truth. So I think your Bibles, I ask you to turn to Genesis 14. And and I want to talk about something from the, the history of Israel and the, the patriarchs. In Genesis 14, you remember that there was a battle between the kings of the north, four kings of the north, five kings of the south. And um, part of the kings were the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. And it just so happens that Abraham's nephew, Lot, lived in Sodom. You, you remember that, right? Remember how they made their choices? The Bible says that eventually Lot sat in the gate. What that means is that Lot became an important elder in the city of Sodom. And we know, of course, how wicked that city was. Well, he was taken captive. And um, the battle occurred in the Valley of Sedim. The Valley of Sedim is basically this Jordan River Valley. And uh, this is the Dead Sea. Looking east, those are the mountains of Moab. Today, it's modern-day Jordan. And it's, it's very rough uh, um, terrain. Another picture, this is further up in the Jordan River Valley. And you can see just how, how barren and, and things are there. But I want you to notice in Genesis 14, verse number 10. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them. <coughs> and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom in his possessions and went their way. So Lot got taken. Now, what did Abraham do? Well, if you look at verse number 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And uh, so here we have the fact that Abraham pursued them. He had his own personal army of sorts, right? And he pursued them as far as Dan. Now, believe it or not, that is a long trip. Uh, uh, Sodom was probably somewhere down on the bottom of the map, and uh, I'm not going to explain it. A bit of an anachronism. Dan was not called Dan at that time. But Dan, I think I have it on your map, is all the way up here by Caesarea Philippi. And that's one of the highest, higher places in, in Israel. And he, he pursued them that far. Now I want to continue showing you pictures of Israel because that's what I promised people I'd do. By the way, I wrote this sermon on the plane on the way home. So if, if it doesn't turn out that well, uh, I don't want to hear it. So, um, but anyway, um, this is, this is tell Dan, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dan itself. I'm going to jump over a thousand years forward in history from Abraham for just a minute. I'm going to go about 1200 years forward to, um, the time of Solomon. Remember Solomon? Solomon, um, had heavy taxes. He died and his son Rehoboam was supposed to take the throne. And the kingdom split. You remember that? And the northern kingdom went with a, a guy named Jeroboam. Jeroboam realized that the only place that people in Israel could worship was in Jerusalem. 
And he said, if I don't do something, the kingdom is going to become back into uh, David's ancestors or David's descendants. And so he built two golden calves. One of them he stuck in Dan. Remember that? Well, this is Dan. This is the location of the altar of the golden calf, the, the northern one. And this is, this is Jeroboam's altar base right there. You see it? Based upon normal dimensions that they know of altars, this metal frame is how big that altar would have been. And there's part of the steps that went up to the altar that they burnt sacrifices on. So, so now realize, I'm going, I'm going to come back to Genesis, but I'm trying to just give you a little bit of everything. Is that okay? Okay. All right. Now, this is what's fascinating. Fast forward about another hundred years, and there's this guy named Ahab. Y'all heard of Ahab? What was Ahab known for? He was more evil and wicked than any other king in Israel. Now, after Jeroboam, Ahab came up there and he built an altar. And I want to show you his altar. His altar, this is the outline of the altar that Ahab built. Massive, massive altar compared to the one of Jeroboam. And and the, all the, the, the idol-worshiping structures that Ahab built that are up there are huge. It's kind of funny. I was talking to one of the people in our group who's a pastor in California. And I said, it gives a whole new meaning to the biblical idea that Ahab was more wicked than all the other kings that came for him. There was a tour guide standing there with a couple people, and she looked at me and she said, who said that? And I said, the Bible. And she said, now she's a tour guide. She said, well, who wrote the Bible? And I looked at her and I said, God. And she said, well, if you want to believe that, that's fine. Uh, she said, and then she went on to a spouse the greatness of Ahab and how wonderful he was and all that sort of thing. And um, I decided I was not going to engage her at all. I just shook my head and said, okay, well, I'm, I'm glad you believe that and just went about my business. But that was, that was a fascinating little confrontation that happened on the altars of Ahab and Jeroboam there. Now, I want to go back. Abraham went as far as Dan got his son Lot, and the reason I'm pulling this out is also at Tel Dan is an amazing structure, and it's going to be really hard to see. I'm going to see if I can point this out. This, do you see these bricks down here? Now, where was Abraham originally from? Mesopotamia, and what did they build with? Mud bricks. Almost everything in Israel is built with stone, these are mud bricks, and this, there's a mud brick arch that goes up and around and down. Can you see it? This is the, the oldest mud brick arch in the world, and it's 4,000 years old. And what they, what they found was it was covered in, and the, when the Danites came up and conquered at that time, it was called Laish, they realized that that gate was vulnerable, and they filled it in. So nobody could get in. And what it did is it preserved it. And so you can walk right up to an arch that Abraham 4,000 years ago would have walked through. Just an incredible uh, little t- thing there. So Abraham, Abram at this time, he, he gets Lot and he, he goes back down. And I want you to look at what happened. Um, go to uh, Genesis 14, verse number 18. 
Verse number 17 of that chapter says that um, afterwards they all met in the valley of Shiva. Now, what's the valley of Shiva? We start throwing these names around. We have no idea what they're talking about unless you research them. The valley of Shiva is in this picture. Does anybody recognize this picture, by the way? That's Jerusalem, right? The valley of Shiva is right in this area. And I'm going to point to something that's really important. So Abraham goes down to meet in the valley of Shiva, and he meets this guy named Melchizedek. Familiar with Melchizedek. And he also meets the king of Sodom, but I want Sodom. But I want to show you something else about this valley. Can you see this pillar here? It looks really small. It's not small. It's actually huge. And there's a picture from the other side, this pillar. And I'm, I'm standing a long ways off. I'm actually standing way up here by this wall where, where this covered thing is. That is called the pillar of Absalom. You remember Absalom, David's son? He couldn't have any children. And so he wanted to erect a monument to himself that people could remember him by. And he built this before he died. You remember Joab killed him, right? And um, so that's the pillar of Absalom. Anyway, Abraham, Abraham met Melchizedek and Lot here. And this is where I want to get to a point of the teaching of the Bible. In verse number 18, look at what it says. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the most God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, or Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And what did Abram do in response? He tithed. He gave him a tenth of everything. Now, first of all, where is Salem? Melchizedek, king of Salem. Is Salem is the city that would eventually become Jerusalem. Salem, right? So Melchizedek is a king. He's also a priest of the Most High God. And when, when he blessed Abraham, uh, Abraham tithes to him. And what does Hebrews say about Melchizedek? That he's a type of Jesus Christ, isn't he? Okay? Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the Bible says. So Melchizedek is a type of Christ who blesses Abraham, the father of Israel. But I want you to see what happens with the king of Sodom because this plays into the geography of Israel where I'm going with how it tells stories. Look at verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. And I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let these others uh, take their share. Now let me tie this all together. The king of Sodom is a type of Satan. And let me explain how. First of all, he was from the lowest spot on the face of the earth, and he had fallen into a bitumen pit. You know what bitumen is? It, it's like a, a tar. And so he probably was covered with tar, his clothing or whatever. 
And he goes to Abram. And what does he require? The English translations, most of them translate it um, people. But the Hebrew word is nefesh, which is souls. Let me take the souls and you keep, and you can be enriched with all the goods. Now that word nefesh, if you turn to Deuteronomy 10.12, I mean, it's all through the Old Testament. I just want to show you one place where the word is translated so you get an idea of all this. Deuteronomy 10.12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your nefesh. Soul. Same word. So here you have in the Bible, long before Jesus Christ is on earth, you have Melchizedek, who is a, the Bible says is a type of Christ, and the king of Sodom, who is a type of Satan, one is blessing Abraham, and the other is trying to basically entrap Abraham. What was the temptation that he brought to Jesus Christ when Jesus was in the wilderness? You remember? If you worship me, I'll give you everything this world has to offer. And that's basically what the king of Sodom was doing to Abraham. You see? That, that's really fascinating to me how that plays in. Now, let me show you something. Um, I have this out of order. And I'm, I jumped my sermon order just a little bit. Wow, I'm way off. Okay, so we'll just move on. Um, Satan... Let me let me wrap this up and we're going to go to another story. Satan has no problem with people being enriched as long as he can destroy their souls. And that's exactly the picture that was being brought out in Scripture as you read the story. But let's fast forward about 2,000 years. You want to do that? So we'll go forward 2,000 years. We're going to keep our image of the Jordan Valley here. Now turn to Matthew chapter number 3. We're going to fast forward 2,000 years and we're going to find what's going on at the crossing of the Jordan River. I was listening to a, um, to a list of hymns today on my, um, on, my, on my phone. And what is the, um, I think it's... Uh, Bill Gaither and, and Crowder were singing together. Oh man, I can't think of the song. And he says, and one day when we'll cross that river, what is this symbol of crossing the river? What is that symbolic of? Crossing into heaven, right? Well, the Jordan River is always a symbol of that. Look, I want to show you this. Look at, and we're going to spend the rest of our time of tracking down some of the stuff about Jesus. Matthew 3, verse number 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness um, of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. 
Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were coming out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, doing what? Confessing their sins. This is the baptismal location of John the Baptist. Uh, Jordan River is as dirty as you hear in the Old Testament. Not very wide anymore. And people still get baptized. But this is the traditional location of John the Baptist baptizing. It's by, if you look on your maps, it's by the main road down by the Dead Sea where people would cross. There was a, there was a ferry and sometimes even a bridge that crossed the Jordan River. And John the Baptist was in that very location baptizing people on this main road. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But the Jordan River begins in Mount Hermon. If you look on your maps, Mount Hermon is in the upper right-hand corner. Uh, Mount Hermon is about 9,000 feet up. And the Jordan River flows through the Sea of Galilee, down through Israel to the Dead Sea. Does anybody know what the word Jordan means? It means descent. Descent. And it starts high. It starts at 9,000 feet above sea level and ends 1,400 feet below sea level. And it symbolizes the baptism happens at the lowest spot on the face of the earth. That's where John the Baptist was baptizing. And the idea, what's the imagery behind baptism? We know what it is from uh, Romans 6. It's the idea that you have died with Christ and your sins are washed away and you raise alive with Him. And symbolically, when you are cleansed of your sin, now symbolically, this is all symbolism, where does the water of the Jordan River end? In the Dead Sea. Your sins are washed away into the Dead Sea. Do you think this is all by accident? The scripture has this, that John the Baptist was baptizing right by the lowest spot in the whole uh, world. We'll turn to Matthew 17. I want to continue this. Now, Jesus was baptized there. But I want to now go to Matthew 17, and we're going to go to the far north of, of Israel, and we're going to follow Jesus' trail for just a minute. And I'm going to teach you something at the very end of this narrative if I can get out of here in time. So we'll see. You ready? Look in verse number 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, anytime the Scripture says behold, it's very important. There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And they lifted up their eyes, and they saw no one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man was raised from the dead. 
<clears throat> now, what's interesting about this little story? I'm gonna I'm gonna really stay with me. Is it is at this point that the Bible says that Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. You heard that right? And he is now the only thing that he's going to do is begin traveling towards Jerusalem to his death by crucifixion and his resurrection. And the last huge event that happens is that he's on the Mount of Transfiguration and he's seen in all his glory on Mount Hermon. Now, now that location is under dispute. Our guy gives a very good argument that it was on this mountain right here and I thought about showing more pictures, but I'm not going to. But this, I'm going to show you a picture from the mountain in just a minute. We went up there. He's, if you look on your map, you see Caesarea Philippi on the top. And the red line kind of goes to the right of Caesarea Philippi. That's where that mountain is. And you can easily, you can easily hike up to this mountain from Caesarea Philippi in about an hour. Let me show you something. This is from the top of the mountain. This is the beginning of the Jordan Valley. Caesarea Philippi is right here. You can hike there up from there up to this mountain in an hour. You can hike down easily in 45 minutes. On your maps, is Dan on your maps? Did I not put it on there? Okay. Dan is just to the east of Caesarea Philippi, and it's right here. You can see both locations from this mountain. And Jesus was transfigured, and this mountain range right here, when you go further up, I didn't stick a picture right up in this area, is where everybody believes that God came to Abraham and said, everywhere that you step foot, you, you, you will possess. And it's all in this little location. So you have Jesus transfigured in all his glory. You have the Father speaking to the disciples and you have the disciples hearing Moses and Elijah and he sets his face to go to Caesarea Philippi and what's interesting about Caesarea Philippi is this little thing right here Caesarea Philippi is is home to the gates of hell the gates of hell are right here you see the people standing in front of it do you remember that they were in Caesarea Philippi and Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And uh, they gave different answers. And he said, but who do you say I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, uh, Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, and this confession is great. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And right here, at that time, was a temple to Pan, the god of the underworld. And they believed that that was the gates of hell. And they would, once a year, they would throw a goat into the spring. This is the headwaters of the Jordan River. And throw a goat into the spring. And if, if blood came up, that means that the god did not accept that sacrifice but if they threw the goat in and there was no blood and the goat disappeared, they knew the God of the underworld accepted the sacrifice. That's going on there. And Jesus is standing somewhere in Caesarea Philippi where he can see that temple. And he says, 
The gates of hell will not prevail against this. The church. I will build my church. This location, this Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus is starting his descent down into the Jordan Valley at this location. Um, And so he comes back down the mountain and they start down towards Capernaum, which is on your map, right? When you're standing north of Capernaum, this is... This is um, on the Mount of Beatitudes. You can see this mountain off to the to the right. Now, this is on the west side. If you're geographically challenged on maps, and a lot of people are, it's on this side of the Jordan River. You see a place called Magdala, or, or the Sea of Galilee. See Magdala. Magdala is right here. Okay, so it gets you oriented. Now. Trace the red line. This is something that always bothered me in school. They would say this is the route that they took through the through wherever to get here. And I'm thinking, how do they know? How do they know that that's the route? Do you see how Jesus' route took him way out and then back around? Well, we know that that's that because you see this little thing right here. That's the only way that you can get south. And so he he went this way and around. The horns of team here. But this little feature is called Mount Arbel. And many tragic things happened there. But it's a beautiful location to go. Let me show you a picture up at the top. That's Heather and me just a few days ago on Mount Arbel. And you can see everywhere. As a matter of fact, Mount Hermon is snow covered. And it's hard to see in this picture. But you can see the snow of Mount Hermon right there off in the distance. So Jesus is traveling down through Capernaum. And now he's gone from... From three or four thousand feet above sea level to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, which I says how far below sea level? Six hundred and seventy feet. So he's traveling down. Jordan means descent, and he circles around, and you see how it comes back in towards the Jordan River. And there's this little town called Scythopolis. You see that? You see Scythopolis there? Scythopolis. He would have passed right by that. That's a fascinating place here's here's the ruins of scythopolis um it was a it was a polis i'm not going to take time to explain it but majestic i i would say everybody went to israel that's probably one of your favorite places to go this is called the cardo that's the main area of commerce for the rich people okay the cardo in the roman system you had to have a cardo and this is what it would have looked like back in jesus day this is a painting with the the booths and everything, that's what it would look like. So Jesus would have had to travel right through that town to get to Jerusalem. Um, one more thing, this is a tell, and I was up at the top there taking some pictures. I don't know if I have a picture from up there or not. No, I don't. But um, anyway, that's that's. I'm not even going to talk about that. But um, Scythopolis. Jesus would have passed through their beautiful location. Pagan, the, the Jews hated it. And he would have traveled on uh, down the um, down the uh, the Jordan Valley. There's us down on the Cardo there as we're traveling. And he's, he's continuing through the Jordan Valley. And he's going down. And he's going down. And he gets all the way down to where the, the red line, the road, turns back to cross the Jordan River. Now, as he's traveling, it's in the springtime, and in the spring in Jerusalem, in the winter 
winter and in early spring is the time for sh- uh, shepherding. And so the, here's a picture I took. This is outside of Jericho, and this is the shepherds. You see the boy and his little sister hanging on uh, behind him on the donkey. And um, the, you see these flocks everywhere this time of year. If you go in May, no flocks. Why? There's no grass. Okay, uh, it takes about three days for the east wind to dry up all the grass, and there's no more grass. And it's, it's a turn that happens in the springtime. And he comes to this place called Jericho. And Jericho is very interesting because it, during the time of the Roman Empire, was one of the richest cities in the world. Now, what do we know about Jericho during Jesus' time? There's this guy named Zacchaeus. Remember that? The wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And he climbed up in a sycamore tree, and we'll stop right there and not go any further. The story of Jericho is interesting because it's more than just Jesus crossing into Jericho. When the children of Israel crossed that same line, the first battle was at Jericho, and how did it go for them? They go good or bad? It went bad because they were tempted by Satan and gave in. Achan took the, what, what did he take? He took earthly treasure. And the, the, the assembly of Israel was judged for that. But Jesus was tempted in Jericho and did fine. Do you remember the story about at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he went into the wilderness for 40 days and nights? Uh, let's see. There's the wilderness. That's the Judean hills. It gets 115 degrees in the summertime there. It's as barren as can be. Jesus spent 40 days and nights there. So these pictures of the soft Jesus who looks like he couldn't hurt anything, it, they're just not accurate. Jesus was a very tough person to be able to spend 40 days and nights in that. And one of the things that happened, and I already alluded to this, is that Satan came to Jesus and said, if you'll, if you, show, he took him to a very high mountain, said, I'll show you all the kingdoms of the world, you can have them if you worship me. Do you know where that happened? Jericho. See the sign, what does it say? Mount Temptation, this is on the um, edge of Jericho. And that tall mountain, It's hard to get perspective. That mountain is very, very high. You can see a building up there, uh, a radio tower. And this is where Jesus was tempted. Whereas when Israel was tempted, what happened? Defeat. When Jesus was tempted, what happened? Victory. Jericho was a time of temptation. Now follow me as as we go on. Jesus would have, have traveled now. And going back to when he's going to be crucified, traveled up to Jerusalem. But I want you to take your maps, and I'm going to try to wrap things up real quick here. I want you to notice how that red line moves from one side of the Jordan River to the other side, and then it climbs up to Jerusalem. Earlier on, I made a little statement that didn't probably stick with too many people. I said that the Jordan is crossing the Jordan is symbolic of going to heaven. Now follow the imagery for just a minute. The children of Israel 
were in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. That is symbolic of our wilderness experience. And when is our wilderness experience? Right now. Right here on earth. Does God provide? Yes. Did He provide for the children of Israel in the wilderness? The answer is yes. He provided manna. And, and they had everything they need. We have everything we need. But the true blessing comes when you cross the Jordan into the promised land. And the Bible is very clear that the rest in the promised land that we receive is when we go to heaven. Right? Isn't that wonderful? Now Jesus crossed the Jordan River and started to make His way to Jerusalem. And by the way, anytime in the Bible you go to Jerusalem, it's always up. And anytime you leave Jerusalem, it's always down. And it doesn't matter about north, south, east, west, or anything like that. It has, it's a spiritual principle. What was in Jerusalem during the days of Jesus? The temple. And who resided in the temple? God. And so you cross the Jordan River into the promised land and you begin to climb up. Uh, remember, you're minus 1,400 feet. Climb up to Jerusalem, which is 2,500 feet. And you go to where the presence of God is in the temple. Now, what happens when we die as believers and we cross over into the promised land? What do we do? We are in the presence of God. We see Jesus. We see God's glory. We see the angels. We see all the saints who have passed on before us. And it's going to be a wonderful, great time. And so the geography of Israel is symbolic of spiritual principles. And there's a lot more than that that I didn't even talk, begin to scratch the surface of in Israel. But I just wanted to, wanted to show you a little bit some of the pictures that we have from Israel and some of the things that, um, that we have here as, as we travel through Jerusalem. I want to leave you with this. I was just trying to figure out the best way to present pictures of being over there with biblical truth. And I want to leave you with one thing, and that is this. When you read the Bible, read it with the big picture in mind. Yes, it's important to look into the details, but there are pictures that carry themselves all the way through the Bible. If you're in my Sunday school class, the we know what that is, right? One of the pictures is the, the garden that's going to become the garden city, right? Heaven. Um, but there are all kinds of other pictures that carry themselves all the way through the Bible, whether it has to do with food, manna, wine, water, whether it has to do with uh, servanthood, whether it has to do with kingship and temples and and kingdoms and all these big pictures and so when you read the Bible, don't just drill into the meaning of individual words and, and how they relate in propositional statements, but rather back up and be amazed that as you read the Bible, these, these pictures just flow all the way through from beginning to end. And there's so many layers of truth that we can begin drawing out that the Bible interprets itself with, that we can spend our whole lives 
all day long, every day, studying the Bible and never get to the bottom of it. When we get to heaven, it's not going to be boring. We're not going to sit on a cloud. Some of you might want to sit on a cloud. Maybe you can. I don't know. But you can do that if you want. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to learn more and more and more about our great God. And we will spend all of eternity learning about God because He's infinite. He's eternal. And there's no way that a finite human being can plumb the depths of God. And we're going to love it. We're going to learn more about Him. We're going to learn more about His creation. We're going to learn more about His people and biblical truth. And it's going to be exciting. And we'll be able to talk to Jesus. And we'll be able to talk to Paul and Elijah and our loved ones. And it's going to be a wonderful thing. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, study the Bible with the glory of God in mind and see the big picture as well as the small details. I love, i got to close, but I love how Jesus talks about the big picture and He'll draw your attention all the way down to a single little flower. And the detail, the beauty of a flower, you can go all the way down and look at a little bitty beautiful flower and then you can back up and look at the grand scale of the beauty of the creation that God created and we will spend all of eternity learning that, enjoying that and we can begin here on earth reading and enjoying God in all His glory. Lord, I know that this was not uh, uh, the, the best put together message Uh, But Lord, I pray that you will encourage us to study more about you, that you'll give us a heart to learn you, to know you, to know your way, to appreciate you and to glorify you. I pray that uh, we'll be motivated, Lord, to study and and cherish our Bibles as they are the the, um, revelation of Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in God's name. Amen.